This is Isabel. And you're listening to the Top Rank Podcast. Welcome back. So I guess I want to say thanks, first of all, to everyone who listened to episode one about nameplate jewelry. And to everyone who got in touch and reached out and talked to us about it in any regard. That means the world to us that you guys took the time to listen. And a special shout out to Rebel Studios who helped us sound mix this episode. Um, For our, our second episode, we were thinking... What were we thinking, actually? Well, we were thinking about timeliness and trying to pick something that would be topical um, and kind of relevant in the same way that nameplates were to us, but perhaps to sort of like what's going on at the moment. So we came up with the idea of Fashion Week as being not necessarily the topic, but an event that we could ground a conversation in. Exactly. So, yeah, Isabel encapsulated it. Fashion is something that's really important to to me even though I'm cynical about it, I, I still really, th- I, I do think about the clothes that I wear and how I present myself. And I think the nameplate episode was particularly telling of the fact that, you know, I kind of identify my sense of self with a lot of elements of style, I guess. But I feel like there's a difference between fashion and style. True. Like, it, when people ask me if I'm interested in fashion, I mean, and this is also just me having an attitude and, and probably being annoying <laughs> if that conversation comes up, but I like to like a line of mine that I like to say is that I'm interested in style, but not in fashion. So I guess I'm interested in both style and the fashion industry. Style is sort of, I guess, connected to other, other sort of like broader social issues and the basically trying to understand like why I make the certain choices that I make and, and what it says about me, but also fashion as an industry. I think I've always been interested in, you know, understanding it as a as an institution that produces knowledge, really about what it means to be a woman, what it means Absolutely. to be a person, um, and in an industry that's often sort of um, uh, thought about as frivolous or mundane or having no sort of political uh, valence, I think that that makes it those very assumptions about it make it a, a really effective um, means of you know distributing a lot of powerful knowledge, knowledge that we take for granted about beauty about person personhood basically so yeah i think that fashion does a lot of those things but i'd like to dig into that a little bit and that's and kind of the premise of this episode and and that's actually kind of a premise of just interest that, that the two of us share is the idea that um overlooked veins of, of information dissemination so kind of like the media or popular culture and things that are written off as being kind of like unintellectual or unimportant are are actually like the most powerful vessels as such and can be for that reason um like both huge huge sources of positive change just because of their scope but also like very dangerous so definitely worth considering and discussing
So I think actually a fun place for us to start is to actually for me and you to reflect on our own our own personal relationships to fashion, to the fashion industry, to style, because I think that at least my I, I have very strong, very strong memories growing up about um different style choices and fashion choices that I made that are very much connected to the person that I was at that time. So I could definitely map out sort of the, my life timeline. Yeah, through. feel free to share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think that could be fun because I, I know me and you are really interested in sort of like the critical theory part of understanding sort of the broader societal implications by fashion and style and what all these sort of concepts mean in our daily lives. But I think also like grounding it into like how these institutions have affected us and shaped us because that's what makes us makes them relevant. I think that's what makes them interesting for us. So it could be fun to do that. Okay, cool. So, um, I, when I first started trying to reflect on my own personal arc to style, I immediately thought of my mom actually, because my mom has this very like impressive archive of just like photos of me and my sister growing up. And she was very into like dressing us in these, I mean, amazing, amazing outfits that now actually like I, I wish I could wear. But, um, at the time, you know, I, didn't really appreciate the way that my mom dressed me because um, she liked to shop at like smaller boutique stores and like thrift stores. And I was always like really embarrassed by the fact that I didn't have like Old Navy or Gap. I remember having a very like an awareness of brands at a very young age. Me too. Absolutely. Like wanting to like wear like an Old Navy, like cheesy, like girl power shirt. And my mom's like buying me fly shit and I couldn't even appreciate it back then. (laughs) But I do remember from very young, like as early as kindergarten, like fantasizing about clothes, about outfits that I wanted to wear. Like my prom dress was a big thing because I wanted to be like 16. Like, in kindergarten? In kindergarten. Yeah. Like I always wanted to be 16. <laughs> like 16 was like the age where like shit was really going to pop off. And like that was like my golden era basically. So I remember during nap time, like consistently fantasizing about my prom <laughs> dress, which was inspired by a dress that Laura Winslow on Family Matters wore which I was able actually to track down on Google Images. I had it on my phone for a little while. But it was like this tight red, basically like spandex dress with like a crisscross back. And I distinctly remember the shoes that I wanted were basically like stripper heels. Like they were platforms with like a clear, like a clear heel. Oh man. Like, Fire. like I, that was my look. Like I, I fantasized about that and wanted to make that a reality as soon as possible. I don't think I ever thought about prom. Wow. I actually just remembered this and I'm probably going to regret sharing it, but <laughs> YOLO. Um, I definitely imagined that if I ever got married, I would wear a white Adidas tracksuit <laughs> with white superstars with gold stripes. You should still do that. That's yeah. I don't know. Idea. I mean, I, I don't think I need a reason to wear that outfit, <laughs> <laughs> but don't save it for the wedding. Wear that right now. Um, yeah, so the stripper heels, I was very into. Um, but I wasn't really into the way that my mom dressed me. Because as I said before, I thought that she would kind of put me in these really like zany outfits that just made me stand out in a way that I just thought was unnecessary. Sometimes, <laughs> I, thought she, sometimes I thought she dressed me too boyish. Like I remember having that memory. Like I'm dressed like this is like not girl enough. Like I want to be like... She'd put me in like weird loafers and like slack outfits, whatever. I need to see this archive. (laughs) That's funny because I had the opposite feeling about boys and girls clothes. I always was very drawn to sportswear, which is hilarious to look back on or to think about now because I was not sporty. I cannot emphasize this (laughs) enough. Like I did not play sports. I had no sports ability, but there was something really liberating and egalitarian to me about 
sport brands like Adidas, Nike, Alessi, Fila, all of those brands I really like loved as a kid because I think that there was something ungendered about them and and an idea of like practicality and physical ability and freedom kind of that that I found very appealing that I didn't see in girls' clothing. Hmm. And I still love that shit. Is yeah, it, you're wearing like a guess like so athletic sweatshirt <laughs> yeah, right now. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't about the activity. It was like some other idea that I guess was like effectively marketed in the branding itself. Hmm. What kinds of, how did you dress growing up? Um, I always wore sneakers and I, I strongly resisted girls' clothes. But I also went to a school that had a uniform for a couple of years in elementary school and there was one day a year that was dress down day. And I one used day to, a year? Yeah, one day. It's <laughs> so extreme. I used to spend the entire year planning what I was going to wear that day and it was usually like monochromatic according to a theme. <laughs> like I remember one year when I wore a black and white striped dress with a with black and white striped leggings <laughs> but they were like hey. reverse stripe Hard to describe. We'll try and find footage. Either way, this was a totally black and white outfit. Kim Kanye way ahead of y'all. Um, and I also, I also wanted to wear like a ton of gold jewelry with it, which I'm pretty sure was like that was imp- was impeded by my parents. But I mean, it's funny because the things that I saw as being connected to femininity, which I still do, kind of in a in, in like an abstract way, were jewelry and nails. Mm-hmm. Like I had, and to even weirder, I saw a connection between like rings, nails, hands, and doing things like pressing buttons as as being as as sort of being like closely related to adulthood and like adult agency. So like my vision of myself as an adult was in some kind of like cubicle office situation, you know, like corporate mommy with with like rings on every finger, really long nails, and then my job would just involve pressing buttons all day. There, which mean, is you're living out part yeah, of no, your I am I mean maybe I'm just it's all over. Like I've already done, I've already achieved my goals. Kindergarten was kind of like, I have a lot of memories connected to style in kindergarten. I'll tell one of the stories actually. So, you know, my mom had this shirt that she really liked to put me in. And I think it was like an Italian designer or French designer or something like that. But it was basically, it, it was a white shirt and the image screen printed on it was like of a, like a, of a fly, like a magnified fly. And I remember thinking this is like the most grotesque, like ugliest shirt I'd ever seen in my, my, my entire life. My mom like insisted that I wear it because it was interesting and like cool. So like she put me in it and I couldn't stand it. I felt like people were staring at me. I remember feeling very self-conscious. So during nap time, I actually deliberately peed on myself. Like I, I kept going to the bathroom to get <laughs> cups of water. And I, I remember just like laying on my cot, like pushing the pee out. Like I could, I just like... I just went in, pushed the pee out because I knew I had like a change of like another outfit that I actually really wanted to wear. I really liked my change like pee clothes outfit. That is the so definition of going ham. I just like peed on myself and like got to change my outfit. Like it just had to happen. I, I was so uncomfortable. And now I like wonder where that shirt is because it was actually a very cool shirt. I have a very vivid image of how it looked. If anyone has ever done something that extreme to change their outfit, please write in. Yes, Let us please know. email us. Yeah, so I remember, yeah, I was a pretty materialistic little kid. Like, I remember being very into brands. So my point before about like my mom shopping at all these small stores and thrift shops, which I thought was like, I used to think was completely embarrassing. Um, and now that's all how I do most of my like 
clothes shopping. Um, but yeah, I remember in middle school and late elementary school, we were really into like baby fat, like rock aware, like shout out to Brianna, who was my style <laughs> inspiration. Always, and still is. And still is, obviously. But I remember when I finally had a computer in the house, like making pretend shopping carts on like drjays.com. Like with just different outfits that like I lusted after, but my mom would never buy. Like so that felt just like really I remember just feeling my youth and sort of my social position as a young person with limited agency due to the fact that like even the amount of times I asked for a credit card <laughs> to buy clothes, actually. <laughs> I just felt like, wow, I cannot do the things that I want to do. And freedom for me at that age was so tied to cons- consumption and being able to consume like the brands that I wanted, the clothes that I wanted, the sneakers that I wanted, but like I didn't, I, I didn't have access to. So I remember definitely feeling like um, in order to be the person that I wanted to be, I had to wear clothes that looked a certain way. I was very brand, I was extremely brand conscious as well. I and mean, to that? an extent, which now is like, I mean, I didn't really articulate it to anyone. So it's not like, it's not like my parents knew or something like that, but it was, I was so highly aware of what at least to me, each brand communicated about the identity of the wear, which was obviously like very tied to the ad campaigns. Yeah. And I had certain brands that I was crazy about like Adidas for some reason. I don't really remember why, but it was just a brand that I loved. Like I love the logo. I mean, just everything about it. And I, but I also felt that there was no brand which like accurately fit who like I felt that I was not intentionally, but just, and so I thought that I could sort of like combine in like an almost like chemistry esque way that by creating this like montage of brands in an outfit that I could somehow like, um, specify like a closer iteration of, of like who I was. Mm. And I mean, the fact that I was like thinking through that, I mean, it's funny because I very much resist identifying with branding now, even though I definitely do it. Like, I try, like, I think that I'm resisting it or I try and resist. I don't know where. But, like, I, critically thinking about yeah. it, you're like, I'm not doing or, it. Or I think that I'm doing it ironically. But, like, <laughs> I think that in many ways that's, like, a defense mechanism. Oh, it totally is. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally guilty of that. In, in our attempt to sort of try to unpack and understand fashion and style as key elements to how i guess we experience everyday life we thought it would also be a good idea to reach out to um some scholars uh who we really wanted to talk to who do research on fashion and 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 style and um covering a broad array of issues within within this broad topic reaching out to scholars as well as uh people who actually work within the industry of fashion to get sort of a broad range of perspectives um towards answering i think what is a question that will never really be conclusively answered, but you know, is, is important nonetheless, which is what can, you know, the fashion industry and the practices and the, and the ideas that it produces tell us about structures of power in our society. Yeah. And I mean, we're not claiming neither of us work in fashion and we're not claiming any kind of expertise in this material, but I think that like a, a lifelong interest and like fixation on something is really telling and a lot of people are are interested in clothing and self styling. Yeah, and we can't take it for granted. And this, and I think that like a rigorous conversation about like what's embedded in that or or what that really means for people's identities doesn't happen that often, maybe, or it should happen more. So we're hoping to 
Well, we're hoping that the people that we spoke to would address that in some way, which they did. So we first spoke with Dr. Brandy Thompson-Summers, who's a professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University and whose research primarily explores how blackness is given meaning visually and spatially, especially in urban environments. And she's done um, a bunch of work on fashion, particularly her dissertation. Um, And she really kind of touches upon race, particularly as an issue and how it functions in a fashion space, particularly in kind of like a late capitalist market. So here's, here's Brandy. We're really interested um, and compelled by the argument that you make uh, specifically around high fashion images, where you say that um, high fashion images express uh, really important contemporary knowledge, cultural knowledge about race and knowledge that, um, you link to um, our current neoliberal economic system. So we're super interested to hear, you know, you talk more about your dissertation and the argument that you make, and also, like, what led you to doing this project in the first place? You see people justifying the lack of black women, let's say, in high fashion because of aesthetic choices. And so they'll say, basically, a black girl wasn't part of my aesthetic, or blackness or that type of person wasn't part of my aesthetic. And so oftentimes it's used as an excuse um, for choice. And so it seems as though taste is wrapped up in choice, which is wrapped up in race, which is wrapped up, as you said, in power, right? So if anything, it tells us about who kind of controls not only images, but how people are seen. Um, when you can say, this person isn't my taste this season. Um, And it really limits, I guess, it limits not only the agency of the individual, but also, you know, consumers, right? So you're trying to buy something, you're trying to learn what's hot for the season or for next season, right? It's never for the current season. And to link race to something that's hot or not is really troubling. Um, And... You'll see that too, like now in, um, not so much Mademoiselle, that was it Glamour where they'll talk about, you know, the hot look is curly hair and you can have an Afro too kind of ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like conceptually, you're thinking about, they, they really tie hair or the Afro to us being an aesthetic, not necessarily being transgressive, not necessarily being a style that black women adopted you know, for a variety of reasons. All of the history and all of the power is emptied of the concept and it's repurposed for this kind of new era um, where everyone can have the choice to look a particular way. You just heard from Professor Brandy Summers, a sociologist and professor of African-American studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. So I think in order to, to, to add to our conversation about high fashion imagery and the, and the ideas and messages uh, that are communicated through this form of media, we felt it really important to also speak with someone who's directly involved in in this industry themselves as an image producer. Luckily, our Top Rank's very own creative director, Christelle DeCastro, is um, someone who we had the chance to speak to who really spoke uh, thoughtfully about her role as a, a photographer and also a creative director uh, working in New York City. Um, to get a sense of you know her insider's perspective as a producer of fashion imagery, and also uh, we were super curious to to understand how her personal politics uh, might shape the the photographic aesthetic and sensibility that that she's known for. So we spoke with Christelle, and here's a bit of what she said. I feel like my political work 
just all kind of blends together with everything that I do, which I weirdly find confusing to, I think, a lot of people. I don't know too many other fashion or commercial photographers that are, like, posting about Black Lives Matter and working on a feminist magazine. You know, when Mike Brown and Eric Garner uh, protests were breaking out, I was like, shit, well, first of all, I need to be there. And secondly, I need to fucking photograph this shit. Yeah. Um, and that was, it was the first time in a while that I was, that I realized, oh my God, like I actually, I mean, I, like, this is my power. It's photography. This is my weapon. And like, here's where I can use it. Hmm. Um, and so I went out and shot the protests for myself and I'm like, okay, well now I, I do have platforms. I've, you know, I have all of these magazines that I work with regularly um, and I have good relationships with them. Like, I can get this stuff out. So I specifically hit up fashion outlets because I'm like, none of these people for damn sure have sent anybody out or give a shit about these protests. Yeah. And so I specifically, strategically... Like, gave it to ID, gave it to V Magazine, um, gave it to Vice, and they, they took it. And, and, I'm, and I'm blessed, but it's like, I, and, I, and I talk about this candidly with, with V, you know, that, like, when I was posting these images on my Instagram, I lost mad followers. Really? Yes! Wow. I was like, go, because I was going ham and like my whole Instagram would be protest photos. And I think people just didn't understand. It was like, wait, are you a fashion photographer or like, what are you doing? Hmm. Like a lot of people don't want to see this shit. They don't want to see real life, you know? And so, yeah, I was, I was, I told B, I'm like, well, we need to make it fashionable to give a fuck. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But that's, that's, I think that's why it's confusing to people because Fashion is, is it's, it's, it's like this own, it's this own other world that like doesn't really have to exist in reality. You just heard from Christelle DeCastro, New York-based photographer, filmmaker, and creative director. You can learn more about Christelle by visiting her website, christeldecastro.com, and on Instagram at Christelle underscore NYC. So we're now going to move on to thinking about another key element of this conversation, which is models and the modeling industry. And we're going to do this by centralizing modeling as sort of a form of labor that is structured to to reproduce certain racialized and gender discourses about beauty in the body. Um, So we want to think about where the potential interventions are possible there. And we had the opportunity, which we were really, really excited about, to speak to Nafisa Kaptanwala, founder and director of Lord Inc., a a model casting agency based in Toronto, New York, and London, which has been dubbed by the press as the world's first non-white modeling agency. So we wanted to talk to Nafisa about that and just about where she sees herself and her business fitting into the industry at large. So here she is. A bunch of press outlets have been calling Lord the world's first non-white modeling agency. Do you agree with this? Do you agree with that description? Obviously, we are a non-white modeling agency, but like, I don't want our focus to be about whiteness. You know what I mean? Like, 
I'm trying to make the focus about celebrating people of color. But since that headline came out, it's like then we started to deal with so much of that reverse racism. Oh my gosh. Can you tell us more about sort of the the response that, that the establishment of the agency has received? I mean, luckily we haven't heard anything to us personally. Like it's not like we hear shit on our Instagram or our Twitter or anything like that. But I've just seen it. Like I've seen our other models post about being signed to us on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter and people hitting them up and saying, this is racist. And that's always the response. It's just kind of tricky because I feel like people are kind of trying to credit us for like changing the industry, changing the game. But it's like, we definitely are making a statement, but as far as really changing the game goes, that kind of is up to the casting directors. How have how, how been, how have the casting directors, what has been the response from different clients to what your, who, who your agency has to offer them? Yeah, I, I'm going to be super fucking real about this too. You know, the white casting directors don't care. They really don't care. So that being said, it's like, honestly, like any brand that you can see that's like visibly, obviously very run by people of color, like those are genuinely the brands that are interested in our models and hit us up. When these, when these yeah. bands and, and brands hit you up though, like, do they specify like, who they're looking for, or do you, is there, is there, um, uh, a change in language and how the models are described or, um, what do these people say they're looking for? Why do they come to you ultimately? It, it just depends on the brand. Like some of them are a little bit more privy to like being more sensitive to the language that they use and hmm. do use more general term. Um, whereas some of them like really aren't and like they're, they will hit me up and say, like, oh, we're looking for exotic girls or something. Really? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've heard that numerous times. Um, so do you have to, like, check them yeah, when, they say, I, when they say that? Or how do you, how do you deal with people, con- like, reinforcing those, like, othering stereotypes, even with an agency that's so grounded in a politics of trying to confront that head on? I mean, we can't. That's the thing. And it sucks. But it's like, these are our clients and these people pay our bills. We can't just call them out. Word. That's the double bond, I bet. Uh, I know. That's the thing. It's like, okay, well, maybe maybe at some point when we get to a stage where we have that notoriety and, like, regardless of, like, how, like regardless of what rapport we have with our clients, we'll still come back. But, like, we def- we're not at that stage and we're not going to be there for a while, so. You just heard from Nafisa Kaptanula, founder of the modeling agency Lord Inc. And to learn more about Lord Inc., visit their Tumblr and or Twitter and Instagram at Lord Inc., L-O-R-D-E-I-N-C. So to add to this conversation about the modeling industry, um, we also had the opportunity to speak with uh, an anthropologist who actually did her dissertation about the model casting industry. Um, her name is Dr. Stephanie Sadra Orify, and she's an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, her dissertation was actually really interesting. Uh, she she writes about her, her own experience actually working as a casting agent for anthropological field work and really focused on how casting agents, herself included, uh, used talk and language in certain ways in order to render uh, a figure of the model that was highly racialized and embedded in sort of ideas of of racial and ethnic difference that 
you know, are are connected sort of broader structures of 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 power and and um, social hierarchy. So I was really interested in her perspective of thinking about, you know, how racial thinking works in the contemporary United States through the fashion industry. Here's Dr. Stephanie Sadra Orify. You know, this idea that it's transparent, that we can see, you know, whether somebody's beautiful or not. Um, you know, this, this has been written about with, you know, Joanne Itwistle to thinking, thinking about aesthetic economies, thinking about artworks, thinking about like how um, that consensus gets formed, right? Definitely, like when you label something art, especially at like kind of avant-garde or elite levels, it does inoculate you. It gives you a sense that you're inoculated from having to think about politics or having to think about it, right? Because, um, but in a lot of sense, you're just kind of playing along with it. Um, right. Most of these people, I don't think, like most of us, like mis- misrecognition works on all of us constantly, right? We're constantly misrecognizing what's actually happening and feeling it in a different way or recognizing it in a different way. So I think that that's one of the challenges for people, um, which I assume you guys are and like me that want to see change in the fashion industry is like, how do you get beyond just saying like, this is racist, this is bad, um, you know, see how this is fitting into the stereotype or seeing how this like fits into that that's not going to work, right? Because people get defensive or they say, oh, I don't mean it like that, right? So it's about like, and it's the same issue of like talking about race in general, right? Um, To get people to move beyond beyond, like, well, I'm not racist or I don't think like that. Like it's not personal, it's structural. You just heard from Stephanie Sadra Orify, professor at the University of Cincinnati of Anthropology. And if you're interested to learn more about her research, please check out our podcast Worksighted page. And we sat down and chatted with Paloma Elsasser, who's a model, student, and writer who we actually came across through Instagram. Um, she has garnered this like amazing following of, I think, upwards of 30,000 yeah, so. um, people. And she has this really kind of compelling and, and unique brand of beauty, culture, style, and um, just like general kind of body and aesthetic positivity, which is really incredible and unique and has also garnered the attention of like all kinds of sort of institutional gatekeepers within the industry, um, such as Vogue magazine. So um, here's Paloma. It's still really hard for me. Like I still go on shoots and like my style through Instagram is commodified in the eyes of what a stylist thinks or a makeup artist. And it's like, it's not exactly what it is. You know, like I'm not always there to be in cornrows and baby hairs. You know what I mean? Mm. So, I think that that's my current thing that I'm dealing with, but I'm also like, okay, how am I going to be proactive in the shift? And like, okay, now I really want to start booking a lot more commercial jobs so people, so clients can see my versatility and see that I can do more than like what... Because, you know, given, yeah, like my Instagram is my aesthetic, but people are always going to... You know, like when people are like, oh my God, this is so you. And you're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, do you really think that's me? Is that what people think, you know? And like, I'm constantly faced with that. So it's like, that's what people see. And like, that's what I, you know, put out there. But it's also like, it's not there to consistently be commodified. You know what I mean? Mm. It's my extension of like, what like, I want the world to see. A small, small frame of it. You know what I mean? I also feel like it's it's difficult because I mean I feel like you really are like a new kind of of model and, and like a maverick kind of individual in this industry and for people who are who have been in the industry that's probably hard to understand like they want to like comprehend you in a way that already exists or already makes sense and so like that they've got to fit you in somewhere in the like pre-existing framework yeah and the truth is that like our generation is going to be a new framework 
Yes. Where, like, it's not going to be that one role for the different girl. Like, that will be the normal girl. Or, yeah. like, the, yeah. And or, the, yeah, it will yeah. just be the girl, like, a yeah, girl. A girl. Like, a girl. It, and that will know? not be, like, a, a surprise or, like, a niche. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, that's scary. People are scared about there being room uh, for course, everybody. Yeah. Um, because we exist in a world of exclusivity. So... And I, I, I see the value in that. Like, but when it comes to, like, T-shirts, I get it. But, like, not human beings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, totally. Like, it's really isolating, and people want to wonder why, like, millennials are also fucking depressed. And people want to wonder why, you know, like, girls, like, you know, in the last 20 years, like, we've all grown up to, to be bred to hate ourselves. You know what I mean? And it's because <laughs> they don't show that there's room for everybody, ever. You know what I mean? And so... It's incredible to see, even on a molecular shift, it's like what, like, you know, so Instagram, like what even like my little following can do to like help a girl like not hate herself a little bit. A lot of people talk about wanting, they're wanting to be a shift, but not really willing to like get into it. And I think that like, particularly fashion has been the slowest to the race. Yeah. Um, and there's still so, so, so much to like, to shift, you know what I mean? Like, and spread, you know, I mean, there is a tilt, but you know, there's so much left to change. But you know, at least it's like happening. You know, yeah. five years ago, I would have never had a job. You just heard from model Paloma Elsesser. Follow her on Instagram at Palomija, P A L O M I J A. So last but definitely not least, uh, we actually want to share a, a conversation that we had with two amazing scholars who um, do work on fashion. Um, their names are Eric Darnell Pritchard and Mimi Nguyen. The, both of them are professors at the University of Illinois, um, Urbana-Champaign. And, and friends. And friends. Um Isabel, you actually encountered Mimi from her clothing blog, right? Yes, Threadbare? Mimi used to co-author a clothing blog called Threadbare that was about kind of like the politics of fashion, dress, and all, I mean, all these topics that we're discussing in, in this episode, actually, which, and I actually read that blog in high school, I think. So it's been defunct for a couple of years, but Eric picked up with a new blog called Glamour Tunist, sort of where that conversation left off. So they're both super involved in thinking about the politics of dress and subculture and, and sort of like how these issues are, are addressed in the media and how we can address them outside of the media. So we discussed those, we discussed with them how they became interested in the subject matter and kind of where they see the future of this conversation being. So here's Eric and Mimi. I guess, uh, so what I'm working on and, you know, how I became interested in the topic kind of also intersects with um, how I became interested in thinking about fashion and style in relationship to um, race and gender and class. Um, so uh, when I was um, a kid, um, uh, and this is a story that I tell also in my project, I um, became really interested in fashion, mostly um, just looking at my mom, looking at people in my neighborhood, in my community, 
um, which was a poor and um, at most working class community and just how wonderful and marvelous uh, everyone was. And, um, and as I grew up, I realized, you know, how they were doing that with none of the resources and none of the things that you see people having uh, all the time, um, you know, in mainstream fashion and style and beauty culture. Um, and um, one of the people who I was really fascinated by um, was the fashion designer Patrick Kelly, um, who is the subject of a biographical project that I'm working on now. Um, I remember watching um, Style with Elsa Clinch. It was a television show that used to come on CNN. And there was Patrick Kelly, who was a black gay man. Um, I kind of, you know, felt my own queerness at that time. I was probably about nine or ten years old, but, you know, obviously couldn't articulate it um, in the ways that I think people would expect or would now kind of articulate that. And I was just fascinated by, you know, this man. Like, he was standing there, like, in the midst of all the fashion flock, wearing their, like, very expensive couture clothes, talking about fashion, but he had on overalls, messenger's cap. Yeah. <laughs> he had this really thick, like, southern accent. And he was just going on and on and on about, you know, um, how much he loved fashion, how much he wanted his clothes to make people happy, and how much he respected people's personal style. And one of the things he said was that he felt that, you know, the black Southern women um, that he went to church with in Vicksburg, Mississippi, had um, as much, if not more, style than the people who were at the Yves Saint Laurent fashion show. So I came to the United States um, as a refugee from the war in Vietnam. And um, so we were, you know, refugee poor. We didn't have any, we, we didn't come here with anything, I think, except for um, uh, uh, photographs and paperwork. Um, so I, I grew up having uh, in, uh, we, our, my family was sponsored out of the refugee camps uh, to uh, a Catholic family in um, Minnesota. Um, um, and almost all our stuff was secondhand or we got it at like church sales or, or whatever. So in 2003, I read in a magazine, I think it was like Vogue or something about, um, an NGO <clears throat> that had started and was, um, uh, setting up a beauty school in Kabul Afghanistan after the U.S. occupation, uh, uh, you know, started in like 2001, um, post 9-11, and how they were going to open this beauty school for Afghan women to learn, quote-unquote, the art and commerce of beauty, and just being really fascinated by this idea that, you know, as a part of the massive NGO apparatus that had um, moved into Kabul in um, the aftermath of the U.S. occupation that someone was going to start a beauty school. And I wanted to take it seriously um, uh, because I, you know, it, it seemed, it, you know, I, I, I heard a lot of people say, you know, I'd be like, hey, there's this thing called this beauty without borders. They're opening a beauty school. Um, and people would be really dismissive and like, oh, that's so frivolous and so, so on and so forth. But then I was like, but there's something there that can tell us about um, how the West uh, imagines itself as spreading freedom through uh, an idea about beauty and that's very gendered, that's very racialized, that's all those things. I started getting interested in, in, in thinking about like how do we take seriously these 
these uh, ways in which beauty and clothing tell us uh, about um, the structures and these uh, these social orders that we live by, and and how do we also take seriously um, our our desire for beautiful things uh, and want for other people to also have beautiful things without imposing these kinds of structures and social orders on them at the same time. I was wondering if you both could speak to that idea, uh, just like more broadly, like what could studying um, clothing, fashion, I guess that's a, that's a broad topic, but what can studying this topic tell us about structures of power in, um, in our society today? I pay attention, I think, in a different way. So one of the constant things that has happened every single year, you know, every season now, has been the critique of the lack of diversity within the fashion industry. And for me, it's becoming a little bit like Groundhog's Day, right? The movie with the <laughs> You know, they have, you know, Fashion Week, you know, some designer will put up, you know, a show where all the models are white or they and or they will, you know, appropriate, you know, the culture of, you know, indigenous, First Nation, Native American people or black people or Latino, Latina people, you know, and then people will be outraged and they will think pieces, you know, just justly, you know, critiquing that outrage um, and we'll get a few celebrities on board to say that this is problematic and then we go away and then it happens again the next season. So I think that one of the things that, you know, the, you know, what can the fashion industry tell us about, you know, structures of power is, you know, the ways in which it actually depends upon people who are very well aware, who are very critical of the things that they're doing to kind of, you know, um, offer their critique in a way that then becomes kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of like, you know, socialized into grabbed onto in ways that actually don't do the disruptive work that it's intended to do, mm. right? It just now right. becomes a kind of a part of the, the rhythm of the season, you know? So the critique is there. They are actually, like, you know, lots of venues for that actually to be heard in mainstream, you know, news media, um, in, you know, social media. Um, but, you know, how do we take that next step? So I think that fashion, um, the fashion industry can tell us a lot about how, um, uh, you know, power continues to, um, you know, rework itself um, in ways that um, continue to, you know, how power is continue always putting forth, you know, new ways to really, you know, do harm to people and, um, and, and actually depends upon, you know, our... Um, particip participation in it um, by just kind of, you know, even as people who are critical, right, to kind of only respond in a particular way. So I guess what I'm saying is that, like, you know, what are going to be the ways in which we, you know, actually, you know, um, put forth a critique, you know, to the fashion industry this season, this time around, that is not going to be, you know, the usual. And that's not to say that what people do in terms of having the criticism isn't important. It just means that, like, when we recognize that, you know, it's always going to be, you know, the same kind of response, or in this case, non-response, you know, we have to be creative and think about, you know, other ways in which to, you know, call this out and, you know, get the kinds of um, change um, that um, that is necessary. I kind of stopped paying attention um, to Fashion Week because... I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, 
Yeah, I, I do feel like it's a, a it's a lot like Groundhog's Day. That said, I do think that the fashion industry, thinking about the fashion industry, can tell us a lot about how we continue to uh, live with um, this certain kind of philosophical and political inheritance of how we think about art and commerce, um, because the fashion industry is this insane mashup of art and commerce, um, and it's really interesting to see how and when uh, the art gets parsed out from the commerce and how differently we talk about the two parts. For instance, we, we have these ways of talking about uh, designers as individual geniuses, which is, of course, inherited from like Western art history. And you know, we still have these ways of talking about um, production that are, uh, are often very troubling, right? When we talk about who, who makes you know, the clothes, you know, there's a long conversation, of course, about like sweatshops and uh, underpaid labor and, and, and all of that. But we can also talk about, um, as a part of thinking about like art and commerce together, that's, I think, a, a one way we, we could pose new questions to, to the, to the industry for sure. To learn more about Professor Wen's research, please visit her website. Be sure to check out Professor Pritchard's blog, The Glamour Tunist, at www.glamourtunist.com. And you can also find links uh, to his articles on our podcast Worksite page. Yeah, so I, I think what you all have heard today, what I hope you all have um, gotten from Isabel and I sort of... Um, exploration into what fashion means uh, to us um, is, you know, our thoughts in progress. You know, we're not experts in fashion, but it's something, you know, that we are personally deeply very connected to and having the opportunity with this podcast to actually um, engage with these ideas and also uh, speak with others uh, to help us sort of understand um, how fashion works in our own um, everyday ideas of ourselves. I think that's been super just like therapeutic for me and really fun. So I just wanted to like take a moment to thank you all for listening, but also thanks to all of our guests who so graciously made the time to Skype with us, to meet up with us, to share their brilliance. So thanks to each yes, and every one thank of you. you. And thanks to Rebel Studios for helping us sound mix this episode. If you don't already follow Instagram already, do that at Top Rank Magazine. And also if you just want to keep the conversation going, uh, about this topic or if you have any ideas for other things that we should cover please email us uh, marcel at toprankmagazine.com and isabel at toprankmagazine.com so yeah email us and we're looking forward to next time bye bye now pop no style I strictly roots now pop no style I strictly roots See me on the road and you not call out to me Do you see me in my pants and tape? See me in my altar back See me gear heart attack Give me little bass, make me wind up my waist Uptown top ranking See me in my bands and ting Cosmo Spring, but the truth, them no know anything. Them no know, say we top ranking.